Please turn with me in your Bibles to Luke chapter 12. We continue looking at verses 1 through 12 of Luke chapter 12 this morning. As you turn there, let me just remind you about our missions conference beginning next Sunday. I encourage you to look in your bulletins and see some of the information in the bulletins about the, the week ahead. And so look forward to, to participating in missions conference next week, celebrating what God is doing in our community and throughout the world in order to proclaim his name. Luke chapter 12, verses 1 through 12. We looked at verses 1 through 3 last week. We'll begin looking at verses 4 through 12 this week. We're going to read the whole passage together this morning. And in honor of God, as we read his word, if you would stand with me. Luke chapter 12, verses 1 through 12. I'm reading from a version of the Bible called the English Standard Version. Verse 1. In the meantime, when so many thousands of the people had gathered together that they began trampling one another, he began to say to his disciples, first, beware of the leaven of the Pharisees, which is hypocrisy. Nothing is covered up that will not be revealed or hidden that will not be known. Therefore, whatever you have said in the dark shall be heard in the light, and what you've whispered in private rooms shall be proclaimed on the housetops. I tell you, my friends, do not fear those who kill the body and after that have nothing more that they can do, but I will warn you whom to fear. Fear him who, after he is killed, has authority to cast into hell. Yes, I tell you, fear him. Are not five sparrows sold for two pennies? And not one of them is forgotten before God. Why, even the hairs of your head are all numbered. Fear not, you are of more value than many sparrows." And I tell you, everyone who acknowledges me before men, the Son of Man also will acknowledge before the angels of God. But the one who denies me before men will be denied before the angels of God. And everyone who speaks a word against the Son of Man will be forgiven, but the one who blasphemes against the Holy Spirit will not be forgiven. And when they bring you before the synagogues and the rulers and the authorities, Do not be anxious about how you should defend yourself or what you should say, for the Holy Spirit will teach you in that very hour what you ought to say. You may be seated. May we be encouraged through God's word this morning. Let me pray for us. Father, please instruct us this morning. Please allow your Holy Spirit to work through the words in your holy scripture And by his enabling through our faith in your son, Jesus, give us the power to be obedient to you. Increase our fear of you, decrease our fear of man, and help us to be motivated as we worship and exalt you. We pray this in your son, Jesus' name. Amen. Before we begin looking at verses 4 through 12 in depth this morning, there's two things that I want to talk about. The first thing that I want to talk about is kind of a clarification based on what we talked about last week. And several people asked me throughout the week how verses 2 and 3 in Luke chapter 12 relate to the idea that God has forgiven us of our sins and Scripture tells us remembers them no more. Uh, Essentially, the question that I was asked throughout the week in many different forms was, look, if verses 2 and 3 are true, verses 2 and 3 that tell us that 
Things that are covered up are going to be revealed. Things that are hidden are going to be known. Things that are whispered in private rooms are going to be proclaimed from the housetops. If that's true, and that includes our sin, and that takes place in the future, the question that I was asked is, how does that jive with what Scripture tells us about God remembering our sins no more and our sins being forgiven and our sins being in the past? How can things that have been forgiven in the past be brought up in the future? Well, throughout the week, I, I kind of came up with some, some things that I thought were, were good to talk about in relationship to that question, but I also kind of went on some uh, internet sites of some pastors whom I really trust and kind of tried to see how they had articulated this tension between this future revelation of our sins and yet the idea that God has forgiven our sins and they're in the past. In fact, I thought of Micah, someone mentioned Micah 7.19 as they were talking about this. They said, uh, in Micah 7.19, it says, he will have compassion on us. He will tread our iniquities underfoot. You will cast our sins into the depths of the sea. And if that's true, how can they be brought up in the future if these sins have been cast into the sea? So anyway, as I was looking at different websites, I went on uh, John Piper's website, desiringgod.org, and as I was there, I kind of looked at one of the articles that he had written on this issue, and I saw that it was dated August 3rd of, of one year. And as I read the article, I realized that he was referencing a sermon that he had preached on August 1st of that year as well. And so I took a little comfort in that, that John, I can imagine John Piper preaching this message, and then some people ask him questions, and on, two days later he's addressing it in an article. So I, I took a little bit of comfort from that, but I did realize that I think it would be helpful for us to spend a few minutes talking again about verses 2 and 3 and how it relates to this issue of the forgiveness of our sins based on the number of questions that I received about this issue. The first thing that I would just kind of four things, four thoughts that I had during the week as I thought about that question. The first thing that I thought about that I think it's important to affirm is that everything we've done will be made known. Let me just affirm that one more time. Everything that we've done will become known. We looked at these passages last week, but Luke eight seventeen says, nothing's hidden that will not be manifest, nothing is secret that will not be known and come to light. 1 Timothy 5, 24 and 20 through 26 says the son of, sins of some men are conspicuous, going before them to judgment, but the sins of others appear later. So also good works are conspicuous, and even those that are not cannot remain hidden. Ecclesiastes 12, 14 says God will bring every deed, uh, every deed into judgment with every secret thing, whether good or evil, and so forth. Many scriptures tell us everything that we've done will be made known. Now, here's the second statement that I want to affirm. Our sins will not condemn us. If we've placed our faith in Jesus Christ and received God's forgiveness, our sins in the future will not condemn us. Romans 8.1, what does it tell us? It tells us there's no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. And so our sins will never condemn us if we've placed our faith in Jesus Christ and received God's forgiveness for our sins. In fact, in Romans chapter 4, Paul's writing, and he's quoting the psalmist, Psalm 32, I believe. He says in verse 7, Blessed are those whose lawless deeds are forgiven and whose sins are covered. Blessed is the man against whom the Lord will not count his sin. Later, he talks about God counting righteousness. Verse 23, he's talking about Abraham's faith. It was counted to him as righteousness. That's Romans 8.22, actually. So, what I believe Scripture's telling us when it talks about God forgetting our sin, he's talking about God remembering it no more in terms of condemning us with it. The language that Paul is using in 
uh, Romans chapter 4 is kind of like the language that an accountant would use. And you can imagine an accountant with his ledger sheet and, and here are the, the charges against and the charges for. And as God looks at our accountant sheet, he doesn't count our sins against us. Those, those sins have been removed as far as the east is from the west. They've, they've been thrown in the depths of the sea. And whenever God looks at us in terms of judging us righteous or unrighteous, he no longer looks at our sins. Our sins are forget, forgotten. They're not brought to mind as God considers our righteousness. Instead, he looks at us, and as he looks at us, what does he see? He sees Christ's righteousness. So, Everything we've done will be made known. Our sins will not be counted against us. Our sins will not condemn us. The third truth, though, that I think is important for us to remember as we think about Scripture and its teaching regarding our sins in the future is we will, we will suffer loss of reward because of our sins. In fact, 1 Corinthians 3 describes this process. In 1 Corinthians 3, Paul is, is talking about the foundation that he laid in the gospel in people's lives through Jesus Christ. And as he's talking about this foundation, he, he says that people can build on the foundation. He says no one can lay a foundation other than that which is laid, which is Jesus Christ. Now, if anyone builds on the foundation with gold, silver, precious stones, wood, hay, straw, each one's work will become manifest for the day will disclose it. It will be revealed by fire, and the fire will test what sort of work each one has done. If the work that anyone has built on the foundation survives, he will receive a reward. If anyone's work is burned up, he will suffer loss, though he himself will be saved. The fire will test the quality of each one's work. And so the image that Paul is laying here is, look, here's this foundation. It's the foundation of our lives, and it begins with faith in Jesus Christ. It's the gospel. And then we, we build upon that foundation. Someday, the image that Paul paints is this. Someday, all our works are going to be laid before God, and they're going to be tested with fire. And those things that weren't honoring to God, that were sinful, are going to be burned up. They're going to be done away with, and we won't be rewarded for those things. The things that remain are the, the gold, the silver, the precious metals, and these things we'll receive a reward for. And so the, the fourth truth that I think it's important for us to consider, and, and this is the point from last week as well, our current obedience to God affects our future joy. Our current obedience to Jesus Christ affects our future joy. Our obedience to God now affects our ability to enjoy the glory and the splendor of heaven. Now, does that mean some of us are going to be walking around heaven going, man, I can't believe this, not as advertised, very disappointed here. No, of course not. We're all going to be enjoying heaven, and yet the truth of Scripture is our joy is going to be fuller based upon our obedience to God. So everything we've done is going to be made manifest. Our sins won't condemn us. We will suffer loss of reward for sin, and our future joy is dependent upon our current obedience in some senses. Now, so that's one thing I wanted to talk about before we got into verses 4 and 12. And now here's, I want to also remind you, here's the central idea of verses 1 through 12. We saw this last week. The main idea that I want us to grasp is that fear of man can only exist where fear of God is weak. That's what Jesus is telling us in verses 1 through 12. Fear of man can only exist where fear of God is weak. We defined fear of man last week as a person who has a fear of man is motivated to do things or not do things 
on the basis of how people are going to think about them, what they're going to say about them, or what they're going to do to them. And so a person who has a strong fear of man is going to be concerned about what other people are thinking about them, saying about them, doing about them, and it's going to motivate them to act in a certain way. What Jesus tells us is where fear of man exists, fear of God is weak. Conversely, where fear of God is strong, where a person is concerned about God and his glory and his majesty and is contemplating his awesomeness, fear of man disappears. It's weak. Fear of man and fear of God cannot coexist at the same time in the human heart. If you're concerned about what other people are saying or thinking or doing to you, you're not thinking about God and his glory and his majesty, whereas if you're thinking about God and his majesty and his glory and his awesomeness, you're less concerned about what other people are going to do. Fear of man can only exist where fear of God is weak. We see that in verses 1 through 12 of Luke chapter 12. I'm reminded of the story of Pastor Yusuf. Uh, Pastor Yusuf, perhaps you've heard the stories of him. He's been in the news lately. Uh, Pastor Yusuf Nardakani, he's an Iranian pastor. And in 2009, Pastor Yusuf was accused of apostasy by the Islamic government in Iran. He was accused of apostasy of converting from the Islamic faith to Christianity. And under Muslim law or Islamic law, it's illegal for a person who has Muslim ancestors to convert from Islam to Christianity. And so he was arrested in 2009, and I believe in 2010 he was sentenced to death. And three times he's been brought before an Islamic court, and they've told him, you must repent, you must recant. Pastor Yusuf, one of the transcripts from his recent trial, says that he responded this way. They told him to repent, and he said this. He said, repent means to return. What should I return to? to the blasphemy that I had before my faith in Christ? His judges responded, no, you must repent and return to the religion of your ancestors, Islam. And Pastor Yusuf responded simply, I cannot. I cannot. Pastor Yusuf, as he's surrounded by these men, these judges who have his life in their hands, who tell him, recant, repent, turn again to the Islamic faith. Pastor Yusuf is not consumed with the fear of man at that moment. He's consumed with the fear of God, and he responds very simply, based on his fear of God, I can't do that. How strong is your fear of God? I want you to think about that this morning as we're going to be looking, at, beginning to look at verses 4 through 12. How strong is your fear of God? You know, young people, as you find yourself at school and and you're surrounded by your friends and you hear them them talking about God or you hear them talking about some things that are going on in their lives and and you hear them talking about some things that are going on at home or some things that are going on at school and as you're confronted with these issues that your friends are going through, do you find yourself kind of nervous to insert your own faith into the discussion? They're talking about the things that are going on in their lives. You know, know, God would really help this person. If if this person had a right understanding of who God is, I could could share that with them, and yet you find your voice kind of stuck in your throat. 
Or maybe you're in, you live in this neighborhood and you have these neighbors and these neighbors are going through a tough time. Maybe they're going through a tough time financially. They've lost a job or they're going through a, a, a divorce or there's a health problem in the family. And as you get together and you talk with your neighbors about what's going on in their lives, at, at first it's a little bit superficial and then you kind of hear them talk about how they're processing these things. And as you hear them talking about how they're processing things, maybe they even reference God in the conversation. And as you hear them talk about God, you realize you know what, I don't think they really understand who God is. Their concept of God is so vague and so, so general, I don't think they understand the, the triune God, the God of Scripture. They kind of see God as this, this cosmic force. I need to say something. I need to tell them something about the one true God and communicate to them how God can help them in this situation and how they should respond rightly to God. And yet as you think about doing that, you're nervous. Fear of man kind of overwhelms you. You're nervous to tell them about God and about how their understanding of God may be wrong and what Scripture says about God and his character and fear of God and worshiping God through faith in Jesus Christ. The fear of man is strong in your heart. That brings me to kind of the second thing that I want to talk about before we begin looking at verses 4 through 12 in more depth. When we say fear of God must be strong in our hearts for fear of man to be weak, we're not talking about a vague, general concept of God, are we? We're talking about the God of Scripture, the triune God. When we say the triune God, we're referring to the doctrine of the Trinity. Remember Pastor Yusuf's statement? Pastor Yusuf is standing before these, these uh, Islamic judges, these Muslim judges, and, and he could have said this, as they said, you need to return to the faith of your fathers. He could have said, hey, you know what? You call God Allah. I refer to Jesus Christ. We're all talking about the same guy, right? Let's let bygones be bygones. Sure, of course I believe in that God still. I just have understood him in a different way now. Pastor Yusuf didn't respond that way, did he? Frankly, he responded much differently than many churches, even in our own area, as they articulate their understanding of God. Pastor Yusuf says, no, my faith is in Jesus Christ now. And the understanding I have of God is fundamentally different than the understanding of God that I used to have. I used to believe that Allah was God. Now I understand the God of the Bible, the God of Scripture, the triune God. He understands the doctrine of the Trinity, and Jesus Christ is fully God. And the God that he used to worship is not the God whom he worships now. And in verses 4 through 12, Jesus is going to be talking about how we grow in our fear of God, understanding that God is God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. And he's going to tell us some ways that we relate to each member of the Trinity. He's going to say, this is how you respond to God the Father if you're going to live in fear of God. Here's how you respond to God the Son if you're going to live in fear of God. And here's how you respond to God the Holy Spirit if you're going to respond and live a life fearing God instead of man. But before we begin looking at verses 4 through 12, what I want us to do is talk a little bit about the doctrine of the Trinity because I believe this is a doctrine that very few of us understand the way we ought to understand. By the way, uh, some of you, if your type A personalities like me, are, are looking at your bulletin right now and you're looking at your watch and you're getting a little stressed out. Daniel, I've got three blanks. You got 10 minutes per point. We're still in the introduction. I don't know how I'm gonna get through this. And you're tapping your pencils, okay? 
or pins. It's okay. I'm type A too. I feel your pain. We're not going to get all the blanks filled in this morning. So let's just kind of take a deep breath and say, ah, I feel a lot better now. Uh, In fact, you can take points under the third point as we talk kind of in the introduction. It's a free canvas. Set yourselves free. But let's talk a little bit about the Trinity before we begin looking at verses 4 through 12, okay? Here's, here's a, the problem that a lot of people have, okay? They understand that God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit are all God, but it's, it's a hard doctrine to understand. In fact, if you ever kind of are thinking about it and you say, ah, I've figured it out, you've probably just figured out a heresy, okay? Uh, it's a very hard doctrine to rightly articulate. And here's a statement that I, I think will help you, and the statement kind of consists of, of three parts. There is one God who eternally exists in three persons, God the Father, God the Son, and each person is fully God. Let me say that again. There's one God who eternally exists in three persons, and each person is fully God. To deny any of those statements is to deny an orthodox biblical understanding of the Trinity. So, first of all, there's one God, right? God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit, but there's one God. Deuteronomy 6.4 tells us, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is what? One. James confirms this. There's, There's one God. But, number two, this one God exists eternally, as three persons. In other words, it wasn't like first there was God the Father, then came God the Son, then came God the Holy Spirit. No, he's eternally existed as three persons. And each person, number three, is fully God. In other words, there's not like God is part God the Father, then like second part God the Son, and third part God the Holy Spirit. Each member of the Trinity has all the full attributes of deity, of God. In in the book of John, what does it tell us about God the Son? John 1.1 1, 1 says, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. Jesus Christ is fully God. Many passages I could take you to to, to show you that. Another passage, Hebrews chapter 1, talking about Jesus, the psalmist says, the, Hebrew, the writer of Hebrews quoting the psalmist says, your throne, O God, this is referring to Jesus, your throne, O God, is forever and ever. The scepter of uprightness is the scepter of your kingdom. You have loved righteousness and hated wickedness. Now, he's talking to Jesus. He calls him God, and he says, therefore, God, your God, has anointed you with the oil of gladness beyond your companions. So he's talking to God, God the Son, and he refers to God the Father. So Jesus is fully God. The Holy Spirit is fully God. Acts chapter 5, Peter's talking to Ananias, and he says, Ananias, why has Satan filled your heart to lie to the Holy Spirit? And then he says, you've lied to God. The Holy Spirit is fully God. A lot of times we come up with analogies to kind of describe the Trinity. Last night we were sitting around as a family and uh, we're talking about this passage and I said, guys, what are some illustrations that you've heard to help us understand the Trinity and how God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit are all God? And then they each kind of shared some illustrations and I said, hmm, that's heresy. That's heresy. That's heresy. Aren't you glad you're not a member of my family? Um, you can tell your kids, hey, I, I, may be, I may not be the greatest dad, but at least I don't call you a heretic. Um, no, we were, we were talking about, seriously, we were talking about those illustrations of the Trinity. I said, you know, that's, that's kind of good, that there's some good elements in that, but it also kind of points us to heresy. You've heard some of these illustrations before, right? 
a person might say, well, God, the, the Trinity is kind of like an apple. You have the skin, and then you have the fruit on the inside, and then you have the core, and, and each of them are, are an apple. Each, each part is an apple, but it's, it's, uh, there's different parts to the apple. Okay. Well, I guess that gets to the idea of, of unity, but God isn't three different parts. It's not like God the Father has some characteristics, and then God the Son has some other characteristics, and God the Holy Spirit has some different characteristics. No, all of God is, is God. Every person of the Trinity is what? Fully God. Maybe you've heard the illustration, well, God is kind of like water. You know, there's water is in a vapor state, and then it can be in a liquid state, and then it can also be in a solid state, but it's all water. Well, no, it's not like God is in different modes. That's heresy as well. Each member of the Trinity is God, it's fully God. In fact, here's a little a diagram that some, if you need a visual kind of aid there. Uh, now, again, don't, uh, again, if you feel like you understand the Trinity, you're probably committing heresy. But uh, basically, here's a way to remember it. There's, here's God, and the Fa- God the Father is God, God the Son is God, and the Holy Spirit is God, and yet the Father's not the Son. The Son's not the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit isn't the Father. They're not different parts of, of God. They're all fully God. That's an orthodox understanding of the Trinity. And Jesus, as he's telling us how we fear God, is going to tell us how we relate to each member of the Trinity, how we respond in fear of God, God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. So let's begin looking at verses 4 through 12. We're not going to get all the blanks filled in today, but we're going to give it a good shot. So let's begin looking at verses 4 through 7 first. And what we see first about Jesus' instruction and how to fear God and not fear man is first, fear God the Father. Look at verse 4. He says, "I I tell you, I tell you, my friends, do not fear those who kill the body and after that have nothing more that they can do. Remember last week as we talked about where fear of man and where fear of God exists, we said where fear of man exists, there's always a a wrong perspective that informs our thinking. A person that's fearing people is a person who's not thinking rightly about reality, and Jesus begins with the wrong perspective. He says the wrong perspective is to fear men. And all of us, to one degree or another, struggle with this. Some of us want the rewards that people can give us. Others of us think about the, the punishment that people can give us, and so we, we respond to fear of God that way, or fear of men that way. And so all of us have different ways that we struggle with fear of man. It manifests itself in our lives in different ways, but what they have at their common root is a desire to do things, to be motivated to do things based upon how other people are going to respond to us, either positively or negatively. If you want to manipulate me, which I hope you don't want to do, but if you ever want to manipulate me, the great way to do it is through guilt, okay? I'm a person who's very susceptible to guilt. You want me to do something, you kind of put in kind of a sad face and say, well, I, I guess you just really don't care about shepherding me, and I will be able to, you know, you'll be able, I'm putting in your hands at that point. Very responsive to guilt. I was at lunch this past week with someone, we're kind of at a, a business lunch here, and and this person was talking to me and the other people there, and they were kind of giving illustrations of pastors they've known in their lives who weren't very good workers, and they're talking about lazy pastors, and as they began talking about lazy pastors, like, my chest began getting kind of tight, and I'm kind of thinking, 
No, come on, stop it. And eventually I just say, we've got to stop talking about these stories and get to work, guys, or I'm just going to leave and go back to my office. I'm motivated by guilt sometimes. I don't want other people to look at me and, and see me being lazy. And I was afraid someone's going to walk into the restaurant there and see me at lunch for an hour and a half and thinking, this guy's just being lazy. I'm motivated by guilt. All of us are motivated by fear of man to one degree or another. And God understands how pervasive fear of man is. And so throughout Scripture, he tries to correct that wrong thinking that we have. Let me give you just one example, many examples we could go to, but uh, turn to Isaiah chapter 8, if you would. Isaiah chapter 8, it's after the wisdom books, one of the big books in the Bible, before you get to the book of Jeremiah, Isaiah chapter 8. And in Isaiah chapter 8, through the prophet Isaiah, the Lord warns of the coming judgment of Assyria, how he's going to use the king of Assyria to judge his people. And as he talks about this coming judgment, he uses some very scary words. He says, because this is in verse 5, the Lord spoke to me again, Verse 6, because this people has refused the waters of Shiloh that flow gently and rejoice over Rezin and the son of Remaliah, therefore, behold, the Lord is bringing up against them the waters of the river, mighty and many, the king of Assyria and all his glory. And so he talks about, you look, you've rejected my water, so I'm going to bring the water of the king of Assyria and all his glory, this mighty king, and the waters are going to flow over will rise over its channels, it will go over all its banks, it will sweep on into Judah, it will overflow and pass on, reaching even to the neck, and its outspread wings will fill the breadth of your land. Be broken, you peoples, be shattered, verse 9. Give ear, all you far countries, strap on your armor and be shattered, strap on your armor and be shattered, he says. He says, make a plan, it will come to nothing. That sounds pretty scary to me. Imagine God saying, look, because of your sin, there's coming this invading country and they're going to sweep over the land and you're going to to try to resist it and you're going to be broken. You're going to try to resist and you're going to be defeated. And here's the name of the king that's coming that's going to, to sweep over your land. What would be our temptation? Wow, that's really scary. I'm kind of frightened of that guy. And yet what does God say? to Isaiah. He says, don't be frightened of that guy. Look at what he says, verse 12, do not call conspiracy all that this people calls conspiracy, and this is key, do not fear what they fear, nor be in dread. All the people around you in your life are afraid of other people. The people in your life, think about why they do the things that they do. Oftentimes, it's because they want what they want, but what do they want? They want the approval of people, or they want to avoid the retribution of other people. And God's word to Isaiah is the same word to you and I. Look, don't fear what other people fear. It's normal to fear other people. Unfortunately, it's also sinful. It says, don't fear what they fear. Don't be in dread of it. Instead, verse 13 says, the Lord God of hosts, the Lord of hosts, him you shall honor as holy, Let him be your fear, and let him be your dread. So the wrong perspective, Jesus says in verse 4, is to fear those who can kill the body, to fear other people. 
what's the right perspective. He tells us in verse 5, But I will warn you whom to fear. Fear him who, after he is killed, has the authority to cast into hell. Yes, I tell you, fear him. The wrong perspective is to fear other people. The right perspective is to fear God. I think sometimes, as we think about that word fear in relationship to God, we try to take some of the oomph out of it. Maybe you've heard people say things like this, well, yeah, fear there doesn't mean like tremble, be scared of. Fear just means to, to consider him awesome and, and, and holy and worthy. It's, it's kind of living in reverence of God. Yeah, but let's not take the trembling out of it either. In fact, consider some of these scriptures. Listen to what the psalmist says throughout the book of Psalms. Psalms 211, serve the Lord with, with fear. You say, oh, that's just reverence. No, and rejoice with trembling. A psalmist says in Psalm 25, verses 12 through 14, who is the man who fears the Lord? God will instruct him in the way that he should choose. His soul shall abide in well-being, and his offspring shall inherit the land. The friendship of the Lord is for those who fear him, and he makes known to them his covenant. The person who considers God and his majesty and his awesomeness, yes, but as he considers that and considers his authority and his power, the person who's rightly related to God is frightened of that. I'm not saying you, you frighten his wrath coming upon you because you've placed your faith in Jesus Christ, but there's an, a recognition of his awesomeness and there's fear of displeasing him. The idea of living one's life in a way that's contrary to what God has told us to do should fill us with, with dread, with fear, with trembling. The New Testament confirms this as well. Colossians 3.22, he's talking to slaves there, and Paul says, look, obey everything, Obey in everything those who are your earthly masters, not by way of eye service as people pleasers, but with sincerity of heart, doing what? Fearing the Lord. Fearing the Lord. Revelation eleven eighteen says, The nations raged, but your wrath came. And the time for the dead to be judged and for, for rewarding your servants, the prophets and saints, and those who fear your name both small and great, and for destroying the destroyers of the earth. And so there in the context of judgment, those who are righteous see God and see his judgment and see his wrath, and, and there's fear, there's trembling. There's a physical response as we consider the majesty of God. Revelation 19.5, from the throne came a voice saying, Praise our God, all you servants, you who fear him, small and great. Revelation 14.7 he said with a loud voice, fear God and give him glory. Why? Because the hour of his judgment has come and worship him who made heaven and earth, the sea and the springs of water. As we consider fear of man versus fear of God, the wrong perspective is to look at people and say, wow, these people can do some really mean things to me. The right perspective is to live in, in fear of God kind of the Halloween season, right? It's interesting at Halloween, the different things that we find frightening and, and scary. What, what are kind of some of the themes of Halloween? It's ghosts, it's skeletons, it's, it's witches, it's graveyards, it's, it's, it's death, right? 
images of death and of the cessation of life, that's what we find scary. And God says, look, that's not scary, ultimately. What's ultimately scary is not the cessation of life, but, but the one who has the ability not just to cease your life, but, but to cast you into hell when it's all said and done. It's a, a radical change in what, what's truly scary and frightening and we should fear. I can remember several years ago, shortly after we'd moved to the central Illinois area, we'd, Whitney and I had, had bought our first home and we'd had our first child and we were at Six Flags. And my whole life, I'd just been terrified of roller coasters and anything that went really high and fast, okay? Well, then we went to, took the youth to Six Flags, and I got on a roller coaster and, with Whitney, and I leaned over and I said, this isn't really scary anymore. I've got a mortgage. That's scary. <laughs> I've got a child at home that is going to go to college someday. That's frightening. And uh, we're on the ride, going up and down. I'm talking to her about all the things that scare me. About our, and I'm like, roller coaster doesn't do it for me anymore. A change in perspective helps us understand what's truly frightening. And, and, and Jesus says, look, verse 4, fear of man isn't scary. What's scary, what's frightening, what we should live in fear of is, is God. First of all, he says, understand the power that he has. He's far more powerful than human beings. He says in verse 5, he has the authority after he's killed. Just like, just like human beings, he can end life. But beyond that, he has the authority to cast into hell. The word that he uses there for hell refers to this place in a valley near Jerusalem. In this valley near Jerusalem, a lot of wicked things would take place. It's called the Valley of the Son of Hinnom, or just the Valley of Hinnom in, in some, uh, some texts. This valley would be used by the wicked people in Israel's olden days, to engage in worship of false gods. In fact, in Second Chronicles 28.3, Ahaz, wicked king Ahaz, made offerings in the valley of the son of Hinnom, and he burned his sons as an offering according to the abominations of the nations whom the Lord drove out before the people of Israel. Second Chronicles 33.6, Manasseh burned his sons in this valley, the valley of the son of Hinnom. He used fortune-telling and omens and sorcery, and he dealt with mediums and with wizards. He did much evil in the sight of the Lord, provoking him to anger. So that was this valley. This valley had been used to engage in these cultic practices, and, and kings had, and other people in Israel had taken their sons there and offered them as sacrifices. Then good king Josiah comes along. He tears down this altar. He defiles this, this altar, and this, this valley of the sons of Hinnom became this place where trash was burned. And the bodies of criminals were thrown into this trash heap. And it was this, 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 this place of, of torment and fire. And Jesus and other uh, prophets would use this description of this, this valley as a description of the eternal judgment that awaits those who have not responded rightly to God. Those who have not placed their faith in Jesus Christ. God has the authority to punish people. God has the authority over a person's soul. And so, Scripture tells us it's important to respond to Jesus rightly now. It's right, important to respond to God rightly now. James 4.12 says, There's one lawgiver and judge, he who is able to save and to destroy, but who are you to judge your neighbor? Revelation chapter 20 
describes the power of God over people in judgment. And we see, as we look at Revelation 20, that Jesus is exactly right. We shouldn't live in other, fear of other people. The one that we should live in fear of is the one who has the power to cast into hell. As we've talked about before, the doctrine of hell is a doctrine that's come under fire throughout church history, but in recent months as well. And what we see in Revelation 20 is that just as God's, uh, just as God's punishment, uh, just as God's reward for the righteous is heaven and eternity, there is an eternal punishment for those who have not placed their faith in Jesus Christ. Revelation chapter 20, verse 10 says, The devil was thrown into the lake of fire and sulfur where the beast and the false prophet were, and they will be tormented day and night forever and ever. And so there's this eternal punishment. Then verses 11 through 15 describe others who will enter this eternal punishment. There's this great white throne, and there's this great white throne judgment. God is seated, this is in him who is seated on it from his presence, earth and sky fled away, and no place was found for them. And I saw the dead, great and small, standing before the throne, and books were opened. Then another book was opened, which is the book of life, and the dead were judged by what was written in the books according to what they had done. And so those whose names are not found in the book of life are thrown into the fire. Death and Hades were thrown into the fire. This is the second death, the lake of fire. And if anyone's name was not found written in the book of life, he was thrown into the lake of fire. And so Jesus says, look, don't, the wrong perspective is to fear men. The right perspective is to fear God, the one who has the authority after he's killed to cast into hell. And you say, well, that sounds very frightening. I should live in fear of him. Yes, and what's interesting is what Jesus says right after describing this incredible power of God. You see, when you and I think of power, we often think of people who wield that power in ungodly ways. The more power that someone has, the more likely they are to abuse that power, right? Well, that's not what's true of God, God the Father. God the Father, as he exercises his power, exercises it in a, a gentle way. It says in verse 6, are not five sparrows sold for two pennies, and not one of them is forgotten before God. Why, even the hairs of your head are all numbered, Fear not, you are of more value than many sparrows. And so you think about this awesome God who is to be feared and worshipped and reverenced, and this God who has the authority over souls and over our bodies also is a tender God who is aware of the moving and the, uh, the movement of, of sparrows. He's aware of the numbers of head, uh, hairs that you have on your head, and in his majesty he is concerned with the little things as well. In his power, there's gentleness. Who should you fear? Should you fear people who, who don't care about you ultimately and, and, and who can destroy just your body? Or should you fear a loving God who is sovereign over all things and, and in his power is also concerned with the small things in your life? I think of a picture of a of, of my brother. You know, my, my brother's a, a big guy, kind of like me, and but bigger. And you can imagine. You know, I love seeing my pictures of my brother when he's holding his his uh, little girls. You know, there's this big guy holding these little babies. There's power with gentleness, or gentleness in the midst of power. That's God. That's our Heavenly Father. 
What's the application for us as we think about fearing God? Well, I believe one application for us is that we need to put away frivolous understandings of God. I remember being a young teenager, young high schooler, and my friend invited me to go to another youth group. And we went to this youth group, and, and uh, so we went into the youth room. It was a very exciting place. A lot of kids there from my high school, and we were you know, excited about all these things going on. And I was given like a basketball, and I was told to make a shot. If I made a shot, I would get a stereo or something. And I didn't make the shot. But I did get a free T-shirt, which was nice. And uh, we went, and there was you know, a lot of like, exciting music, and, and there was a, kind of a, a message about something, I don't know for sure, maybe something about fitting in with other kids and how God wants to be your friend, something like that. And, and uh, you know, I went away from the youth group thinking, you know, some of those things weren't bad. It's not bad to get a free t-shirt, but there was something missing, right? And as I thought back on that experience, I realized, you know, what I think was missing there, without judging hearts, but what I, I sensed to be missing was an awareness of the divine, a, a fear of the divine. To rightly remove fear of man, we have to have a fear of God the Father. There has to be a sense of his awesomeness. And when we come to worship God, there should be in a sense that, you know what, God is, is other, and it is frightening to think of displeasing a holy God. As I come into his presence, and what I experienced in high school, I've experienced many times since, when I come into a church, my goal isn't to hear a message about how much God wants to take care of my finances or, or how much God wants me to be a, a, a friendly person or, or you know, those things. Some of those things can be applications, but when I come into a, a worship service, I need to be aware that I'm worshiping a fearsome and awesome God. Think about what the prophet Isaiah says in Isaiah chapter 8. I'm sorry, in Isaiah chapter 6. In Isaiah chapter 6, verse 1, Isaiah says, I saw the Lord sitting upon a throne, high and lifted up, and the train of his robe filled the temple. Above him stood the seraphim. Each had six wings. With two he covered his face, and with two he covered his feet, and with two he flew. And one called to another and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is holy full of his glory, and the foundations of the thresholds shook at the voice of him who called, and the house was filled with smoke. And I said, this is what Isaiah said in response to this vision of the holiness of God, Isaiah said, woe is me, for I am lost. I'm a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of a people with unclean lips, for my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. That's fearful. That's a holy fear as we come into the presence of a divine Father. And it's no surprise to me that our fear of other people is strong when our understanding of God is so, so weak. 